First King, chapter six, verses one to thirteen. Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the second month, in the month of Siv. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The portico in front of the temple sanctuary was 30 feet long, extending across the temple's width, and 15 feet deep in front of the temple. He also made windows with beveled frames from the temple for the temple. He then built a chambered structure along the temple wall, encircling the walls of the temple, that is the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest chamber was seven and a half feet wide. The middle was nine feet wide, and the third was ten and a half feet wide. He also provided offset ledges for the temple all around the outside, so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. The temple's construction used finished stones cut at the quarry, so that no hammer, chisel, or any iron tool was hurt in the temple while it was being built. The door for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the temple. They went up a stairway to the middle chamber, and from the middle to the third. When he finished building the temple, he panelled it with boards and planks of cedar. He built the chambers along the entire temple, joined to the temple with cedar beams. Each story was seven and a half feet high. The word of the Lord came to Solomon: As for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, ordinances. And keep all my commands by walking in them. I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. And the second reading comes from Matthew chapter twelve, which you can find on page eight ninety six. Matthew chapter twelve, and reading from verse one. At that same time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, "Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath." He said to them, "Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests." Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are not innocent, and are innocent? But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what, known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a paralysed hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" But he said to them, "What man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath." Then he told the man, "Stretch out your hand." So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might destroy him. When Jesus became aware of this, he withdrew from there. Huge crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known, 
so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smouldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, Perhaps this is the son of David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, If you don't know who I am, I'm the Simon whom Paul was referring to in the video. Um, It's, yeah, um, I'm sad to leave. Um, but I'm excited that God might use Adele and myself and even little Stella and Sebastian to do some damage for the kingdom down in Adelaide. Um, so um, thanks for praying already. Please keep praying for us, but big, bigger than that, pray for Adelaide. Uh, it's a place that desperately needs the gospel. Um, it's known as the city of churches. I don't know if you know that. It's also... No, I won't tell you that one. It's, um, it's known as the city of churches. Apparently it's known as the city of churches because Adelaide, if you've been there... I'm sorry if you have... Um, Now, if you've been to Adelaide, it's a flat plain, and apparently when Adelaide was being built, and as things were rising up, the only thing you could really see were the steeples of churches. I don't think it means there are more churches per capita than anywhere in the world in Adelaide. It's just that when you looked across the plain, you could see all these steeples of churches. Um, It's a place full of dead churches. Uh, The gospel is um, in short supply. Um, We go, hopefully, in a small way to kind of bring it back. Um, So do pray for Adelaide. Um, We're in... Strangely enough, 1 Kings 5 to 7 today, delighting in the divine. Um, Let's think about something better than me. Um, Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Uh, Father, we ask that whatever is rattling around our heads, whatever we're going through, um, however we're feeling right now, uh, that you would meet us as you speak to us through your word, for our good and for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Since we were married in 2003, Adele and I have moved eight times. Uh, Number nine is just a few weeks away. At one level, I don't really mind moving. I actually quite like the idea of change. You know, new surroundings kind of excite me. But compared to my darling wife, my level of interest is virtually non-existent. Every time, out of nowhere, come the colour charts and the swathes of fabric and the possible bathroom layouts sort of start appearing. And the atmosphere is charged with discussions about rugs that will pick out that colour in that painting. Um, and then she starts talking about the advantages of stone over ceramics and thousands of other things that I have to say do nothing at all to stir my creative juices which for me creates a certain sense of foreboding as we come to 1 Kings 5 to 7, because on the surface, at least, these chapters are all about building and interior decorating. Structurally, they read like major renovation plans, and then they kind of move to the kind of scrapbook that Adele produces as she kind of pulls together some things to give our house that kind of something special. These chapters elicit in me about as much enthusiasm as an episode of The Block does. For me, at least, this is one part of the Bible which Dale Rail Davis says, describes as inspiration that requires perspiration. And yet, having given these chapters such a resounding build-up, you can't wait to dig into these, can you? 
buried in the details of what is apparently this inspired yet uninspiring part of the Bible is what I want to put together to you is the most concise and perhaps complete guide to living for God. Dare I say it, even living for Jesus Christ that you will find perhaps in anywhere and any part of the Bible. Here is in chapters 5, 6 and 7 of 1 Kings a marvellous guide for living for Jesus. Do you need convincing? Come with me. Uh, Before we drown in the deluge of pomegranates, cherubs and carefully carved details, I want you to see what's driving these chapters. You see, firstly, there is power in the promises. You see, everything that is in these chapters and is highlighted in this text, which which explains why Solomon and his vast army of willing and unwilling kind of helpers do what they do. What is it? What's driving these people? Everything that happens in these chapters is driven by the power of God's promises. There's real motivation here, real power, power that moves people to action, that moves people to do stuff, and it all flows from the promises of God. It's obvious from the very beginning, from the exchanges with Solomon and his royal mate in the north, the king Haram of Tyre, chapter 5, verse 3, page 300. You know my father David was not able to build a temple for the name of Yahweh his God. This was because of the warfare all around him until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. You see, everything here is grounded in theology, the promise of God. Even verse 7 of chapter 5, King Haram blesses King Solomon. And again, we see the overarching promises of God in chapter 5, verse 12. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And this thread, the emphasis on divine promise, continues all the way through these three chapters. In chapter 6, verse 1, chronology is pressed into the service of theology. Chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the second month, in the month of Ziv. You see, God's promises, although they might not come to fulfillment at breakneck speed, make no mistake, God's promises will be fulfilled. And the emphasis on time frame here undoubtedly implies that this building of the temple of God in God's land is the greatest event to have happened to God's people since they were brought out through the exodus from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. We see here God's unfolding master plan of salvation coming to fruition. The land is finally occupied. They've moved in. God has come in. God has come through in his promises. You want evidence that God's promises are coming to fruition? Just stand and have a look at the temple. The temple is coming up. Chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, which we'll come back to a bit later on, makes it even clearer that what's happening in the Jerusalem construction industry has got everything to do with God's covenantal dealings with his people. Verse 11, chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances and keep all my commands, by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. Friends, classic covenantal promise language. And then it moves on. Even, they even erect this huge bronze kind of bowl they bring into the temple. 
this huge thing, they call it the sea, and you come across it in chapter 7. They put this big bowl in the temple to remind them of two things, both the crossing of the Red Sea, which God orchestrated for his people, bringing them to safety, but also a symbol of God's triumph, his victory over earthly powers. The covenant God has got it covered. Similarly, the detail and the information concerning the erection of two freestanding pillars. I didn't think you were kind of, I bet you didn't think you were going to come to church this morning and hear about two freestanding pillars. But here we go. And they've also got some very impressive lily work on the top of them. The reason we have these two freestanding pillars is to remind God's people that God is a promise-keeping God. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 21. He set up the pillars at the portico of the sanctuary. He set up the right pillar and named it Jachin. Then he set up the left pillar and called it Boaz. The tops of the pillars were shaped like lilies. Pretty nice, isn't it? Then the work of the pillars was completed. Now, the names of the pillars mean strength and he establishes. So if you read the pillars from right to left, you would read, in strength he establishes. The pillars remind God's people of his power and his promise. They speak of our helplessness, but they also speak of what the, the God who is his unyielding determination to bless his people through the Davidic dynasty. They're a great reminder to the insiders as they turned up to the temple that God is faithful and keeps his promises. Now, friends, the basic principle here, and which you read of in a thousand other places in the Bible, is that hope, the promise of God, is the engine room of the Christian life. That's what's going on here. If you want to follow Jesus in the long haul, if you want to throw yourself into following Jesus and serving his people, his church, it's vital you grasp this point. The motivation to keep going in life, to keep going in ministry, always comes from what's in front of us. The power to live for Jesus comes from his promises. How does it work for us? How does it work for me? I reckon I've got five basic reasons for getting out of bed every morning to do what I do. And they're all ultimately based in the promises of God made through Jesus Christ. Why do I get out of bed and do what I do? Well, firstly, Christ has said that he will build his church. That's where the action is. This is where the action is. This is the pointy end of history. Jesus gathering his people and building his church. That's why it's worth being involved in this project. It's the greatest project that is in the world, even if it's a pain in the neck sometimes. Secondly, Christ will finish his work in us. Why do I keep going myself? Why do I wake up? Why do I repent? Why do I grow? Why do I learn? Why do I hang out with you guys who also need to repent and learn and grow and become more like Jesus? Because Christ has promised he will finish his work in us. Why do I seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anything that moves? Thirdly, because Christ will come and judge the world. He's coming back. Why is all this effort worth it? Why is it ultimately a good investment and not a complete waste of time to invest into what God is doing? Fourthly, because Christ will bring about a new creation. Everything will be reconciled to him. All things in heaven and earth and a new creation will come into being. Well, there'll be no pain, no suffering, no tears, but life with God. And fifthly, why do we press on? Because we will see God as he is and enjoy him forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all out there. The best is yet to come. Thankfulness is great. Gratitude is important. 
but we're not all that good at being grateful and thankful. I'm terribly inconsistent at being thankful for what God has done. We forget very quickly. So we're not just to look back at the cross and live for Jesus because God gives us hope. He gives us promise. And if we don't get that, we'll lack oomph, we'll lack stickability, we'll lack motivation, and we'll lack urgency in our Christian life. So we need to realize today that there are power, there's power in the promises of God. That's the first thing I want you to notice. But there is also delight in the detail. Delight in the detail. One of the things I love about Australia, one of the things I love about being Australian, is that it's really normal to be interested in cricket. Who here is interested in cricket? Yeah, good on you guys. That's good. Three of us. To know Don Bradman's batting average in test cricket is a mark of a well-adjusted member of the Australian society. Um, To know that the ball has started to reverse swing at about 5pm on a test day at cricket is really great. To know that Shane Watson has this awful um, habit of planting his front foot and playing around it is not just acceptable, it's actually admirable in our society. And so I think I would have gotten on really well with a writer of 1 Kings chapter 5, 6 and 7 because this man has an eye for detail. When he describes the labour force that Solomon assembles to get the temple up and running, what do we get? 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, we get detail. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 13. Then King Solomon drafted forced labour from all Israel. The labour force numbered 30,000 men. He sent 10,000 to Lebanon each month in shifts. One month they were in Lebanon, two months they were at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 porters or burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the mountains. Detail, detail, detail. Chapter 6, verse 33, when talking about the doors of the temple, what do we get? Detail. Have a look at verse 33. 33. In the same way, he made four-sided olive wood doorposts for the sanctuary entrance. The two doors were made of cypress wood. The first door had two folding sides and the second door had two folding panels. He carved cherubim, palm trees and flower blossoms on them and overlaid them with gold applied evenly over the carving. He built the inner courtyard with three rows of dressed stone and row of trimmed cedar beams, probably to kind of earthquake protection. And what's going on? Detail, detail, detail. What's he talking about? I have absolutely no idea. When it comes to doors... That's way too much information for me. But you can't miss the fact that he's passionate about detail. The bronze water holder, chapter 7, verse 23, this sea of cast bronze. Have a look at verse 23, chapter 7. He made the cast metal reservoir, or sea, 15 feet from brim to brim, perfectly round. It was 7.5 feet high, 45 feet in circumference. Ornamental girds, don't forget the girds, encircled it below the rim. Ten every half yard, completely encircling the reservoir. The girds were cast in two rows when the reservoir was cast. Detail, detail, detail. Why? Why all the detail? Two reasons that I think are so significant for this barrage of information. One is theological. The attention paid to carvings and replicas of generic flowers and girds and lilies and pomegranates of all kinds, of leaves, the importance of using cedar and cypress is not accidental. You see, there is a really strong Garden of Eden symbolism here. The temple is where God has now made it possible again for his people to meet with him, albeit in a restricted way since the fall. 
The detail paints in every way this picture of the Garden of Eden. But there's another reason. The second reason is, let me call it doxological or praise. All the detail is given. All the painstaking care is required because of the sheer overwhelming beauty and impressiveness of God. God is worth all this. Now, I think it's rammed home by the fact that no one would ever see a significant part of this building. They lay a gold floor in the temple that no one would ever walk on. The gold leaf on the walls covering the cedar wasn't there so that little fingers wouldn't get splinters on them because there wouldn't be any little or big fingers anywhere near it. This was all going into a room that nobody would ever go into. What's the point? I mean, why make all this effort to decorate a room like this that no one's ever going to use? Well, the care here is demanded simply by the splendor, magnificence, and perfection of God. That's the symbolism. You see, this audio tour in these chapters is given to people who would never be in that room. They'd never get past the porch. But it's here to give them a picture of the magnificence, attractiveness, and majesty of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but this all sounds kind of weird to me. Because we inhabit a world of comfortable seats, large mixing desks, and beautiful high-powered speakers. Our aesthetic concerns stretch to the quality of the graphics on the screen and the fonts in the newsletter that's in front of you, but not much further. I think we're rightly concerned, though, about how we, what we do looks to the outsider. It's a real challenge for us to that we need to take seriously to match the quality of what people routinely encounter outside of the church with what they encounter inside when they come and rub shoulders with God's people. But that's not what's going on here. The temple is not particularly seeker-sensitive. In fact, virtually no Israelites were going to get in, let alone the outsiders. Something else is going on here. This is purely for God. This is beauty for beauty's sake. Art For art's sake, work for work's sake. The craftsmen who are crafting the temple aren't doing it for public acclaim and notoriety. You didn't get to put up a plaque in the Holy of Holies that said metalwork by Jimmy from Mossman. You weren't allowed to do that. There is dignity, satisfaction, fulfillment in work that no one will ever see because they're doing it for God. You know, I wonder if we've actually lost sight of simply doing things purely and utterly for God. I suspect we've misplaced any sense of just true devotion. You know, in previous generations, the danger was that you just overlaid devotion on anything and everything and you could just do whatever you like. I suspect that we've just forgotten about it. That we're actually allowed to do things just because God is magnificent and only God will ever see it. That it's okay to find joy in living for God and with God in all the details of life. You see, the air we breathe today is hugely pragmatic. What's valued is what is effective. Doing is prioritized over being and certainly over just simply enjoying. And I don't think it's pushing it too far to say that appearance and impact trumps reality and authenticity nearly every single time. And what Scripture does here is takes us into this emerging temple and makes us just sit and watch as some unknown guys carve some pretty patterns that no one will ever see. 
so that we can actually get the fact that we can just delight in the detail. Charles Simeon, who's preaching, revolutionised the city of Cambridge and laid the foundation for much evangelical expository preaching all around the world. Uh, Once said, it's on the screen. There are but two lessons for every Christian to learn. First, enjoy God in everything. And secondly, enjoy everything in God. You see, there are some things we do simply to bring pleasure to God. They may never result in any functional outcome, but they still bring glory and honour to him. You know, I once made a number four for the door of the house that I, used, I grew up in, in Adelaide. Um, I did it when I was at school. Number four chiselled out of this beautiful piece of timber. Um, to be honest, you wouldn't have put that number on a dog kennel. It was terrible. Um, I remember giving it to my dad, who was actually quite skilled and competent at woodwork. He was, his father was a carpenter. And he, I gave it to him, and he looked at it, and he said to me, Thanks, son. I'll keep that in the garage. And you know what? That was okay. Because for me, just having my dad say thanks, that was enough. That was enough. I knew it wasn't that impressive. It was pretty evident to me, but it was for his pleasure. See, it's not all about function. It's okay to delight in the detail. It's okay for us to be people who bear the image of God to enjoy everything that is good and true is coming from God and reflecting something of God. We need to recapture a little bit of just delighting in the detail and radical devotion that no one will see. So there is power in the promises. There is delight in the detail. And because this is Alliteration Sunday, there is contrast in the construction. Third point today. Just wait for the fourth one. It's even better. Um, Right in the middle of this painstaking description of blocks and bits and pieces of the building of the temple comes chapter 6. Now, any time in an Old Testament narrative that there's like a little kind of interruption, they're very important. Something significant is coming. The author grabs our attention. This is no different. Well, in chapter 6, verse 2, we read, chapter 6, verse 2, the temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So the temple was about 30 metres by 10 metres by 15 metres. That's kind of pretty good, you know, respectable in ancient standards for a temple. So well done, Solomon. But come with me to chapter 6, verse 37. The foundation of the Lord's temple was laid in Solomon's fourth year in the month of Ziv. In his 11th year, in the eighth month, in the eighth month, in the month of Bull, the temple was completed in every detail and according to every specification. So he built it in seven years. Solomon completed his entire palace complex after 13 years of construction. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the top of the pillars. Jump down to verse 7. He made the hall of the throne where he would judge, the hall of judgment. It was panelled with cedar from floor to rafters. Verse 8. Solomon's own palace where he would live in the other courtyard behind the hall was of similar construction. And he made a house, same word, like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Solomon, but friends, do the math. His house was almost twice as big as the temple. 
It took him much longer to build it. While there's no missing the fact that the narrator is much less interested in the detail of Solomon's house than Yahweh's house, same word, it's clear where Solomon's priorities were. Yep, he built a house for Yahweh. He also built a bigger house for himself. That's in a pretty clear message in the ancient world. And just in case you think I'm reading too much theological significance into the floor plan, the narrator helpfully tells us, just to show us we're on the right track, he also built a house, same word, for Pharaoh's idolatrous daughter. So the jarring interruption here in chapter 7 is here to make us get the fact that even though Solomon did a great job with the temple, his building plans were ultimately tainted with selfishness. Now, of course, Solomon needed a place to live, and I don't want to argue that he shouldn't have built a palace, and by definition, a palace has to kind of be spacious. That's all fair. But I do want to say that the house he built does say a lot about him. It tends to be that way, doesn't it? Where we choose to live, the car we choose to drive, the way we spend our money, is whether we like it or not a good barometer of where our heart is. For many years in the UK, there was a terrible television show called Through the Keyhole. I hope you've never seen it. In which two teams would try to identify the D-grade, D-grade celebrity who'd allowed the host to go poking through their stuff with a camera and things like that. I wonder if we were to have our own church edition of Through the Keyhole. You know, send Dan Optivate in with a camera into your house and sort of rifle through your stuff, picking through all your affairs, and then on the screen kind of flash up, you know, here we are at the such and such's house, and we're going through your house, your rooms, your bank statements, etc. How would you feel? I wouldn't want it. You know, does the way you live say sacrifice and simple living or self-indulgence? Does it say lively and graphically, life, my life's all about Jesus or all about me? Yeah, sadly, a walk down the main street of Jerusalem was enough to answer that question. It was all about Solomon. Which takes us to the final movement in our passage. You see, because there's power in the promise of God. There is delighting in all the details of life. There is huge contrast in the two constructions. And then there is, wait for it, dependence on the Davidite. That's the best I could do. I'm sorry. Dependence on the Davidite. So the key passage in this whole section, chapter 5, 6, and 7, is really telling. It's actually quite remarkable. Have a look at chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 11 to 13. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you walk in my statutes, observe uh, my ordinances and keep all my commands by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. What's so remarkable about those verses? What's so remarkable, firstly, about those verses is it downplays the significance of the temple. It's as if Yahweh says, you know, about that temple that you're building, Solomon, uh, the temple's not the main issue, actually, Solomon. The main thing is you. You are. Like, no pressure, Solomon. It's all about you. God makes it clear that the future of his people, including the future of the temple, rests on one man. And in particular, the obedience of one man. If this man, one man, manages to walk in the statutes of God, observe all the ordinance of God, keeps his rules, follows all of Yahweh's commandments to the letter and walk in them, if Solomon manages to keep the covenant, then all will be well. 
Specifically, God says he will establish his word among them. Now, because you guys know your Bible so well, you'll know straight away this is pure Deuteronomy. Yeah, you got that, don't you? This is pure Deuteronomy. How does God show his presence in the book of Deuteronomy? How do we know that God has shown up? We know when he speaks. When he establishes that jack and pillar word among his people, his word among his people. That's the reality of God dwelling among his people, Israel. If Israel is to flourish, God says, it's going to take that, the word of God living in them. If you're you're going to have me living among you, God says, speaking constantly, it all depends on David's son, the Davidite. It all depends on you, Solomon. The problem is, as we've already seen, Solomon isn't all that dependable, is he? He has his moments, he builds the temple, he makes some great choices, he wrote some great books. If you read on in 1 Kings, you pray some pretty cool prayers, but he's also made some pretty bad choices as well. He also built a great temple for himself and one for his idolatrous wife. If it all depends on this son of David, then the future doesn't look bright after all. I don't want to spoil particularly the rest of the book of 1 Kings, which I know you're going to go home and read straight away after church today. But I do want to let you know, spoiler alert, this son of David doesn't pull it off. He won't keep the covenant. He doesn't keep the statutes. He doesn't keep the commands of Yahweh. And I don't want to spoil the rest of the Old Testament because you're going to go and read that tomorrow on your long weekend Monday off. But let me spoil it for you. You really need to know that Yahweh's word will not be established in amongst his people. There's a succession of sons of David, kings of Israel that fail and fail and fail. And so we're still searching for a king to keep the commands and establish his people back together. And eventually the voice of God goes quiet, stops. Until one day, God speaks to Joseph, son of David, about his descendant. And eventually everything will change. In his gospel, Matthew describes in that chapter we had, Matthew chapter 12, this controversy that flares up between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees as they're walking through grain fields on the Sabbath, picking heads of grain. An argument starts about whether Jesus is greater than King David, Solomon's dad. When they encounter a demon-possessed man, just a few verses later in Matthew 12, and Jesus delivers and heals him, what do the crowds cry out? Could this be the son of David? The one who will overcome evil, crush Satan forever, restore relationship with God our maker and sit on God's throne forever and rule eternally. Is this the son of David? And just a few lines later, from the mouth of God himself, Jesus Christ, what does he say? One greater than Solomon is here. Here is the one. Here is the one who is the fulfillment of of all of God's powerful promises. Here is the one whom God promises, all the promises of God converge and then explode into unanticipated glory. Here is the one who truly delights in all the details of God and in all the details of life and allows us by the Spirit to share in all those delights and details. Here is the one who doesn't just build a temple, but who is the temple. Here is the one who not only keeps the covenant, but establishes a new covenant in his body and blood by bearing our sin in his body on the cross and then rising to new life so that we too can have eternal life. So is your life short of power? 
Is your motivation in the Christian life flagging? This week, are you, del- are you lacking delight in the details? Are you wasting time building with the wrong materials in the wrong places for the wrong reasons? Do you desperately need someone to bail you out again? To do what you can't do for yourself? Then look no further, for the one greater than Solomon is here. And his name is Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, these chapters are not about building an interior, decorating. They're about the true son of David. These chapters are nothing more, and they're nothing less than an invitation to run to him again. Yep, there's power in the promises. There's delight in the details. There's contrast in the construction. But let us all run to the true Davidite, Jesus Christ, and again find peace, security, hope, real hope in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. But more than that, we thank you that in your word you show up and invite us to find hope, strength, and delight, and security through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who pours his spirit into our lives. And Father, even this morning, this day, we pray that you'd expand our vision and help us to take our eyes off the stuff that's bogging us down, and that again you'd help us to take hold of the gospel, to run to Jesus to begin this new day, to begin this new week together as people who are, again, just gasping at what you've done for us in Jesus. For what you've done for us in Christ far outstrips anything in history. And it offers us real hope, real life, true peace and glory. Father, work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.